Our Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the coverings that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he may save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. I've told the story before. Um, I did not grow up in a tradition that did that practice greeting on Easter morning. And so my wife and I one day went to a church like this that did that. And it was an Easter morning. And at the time of connecting, everyone got up and said, the Lord is risen. And as people would come up to us and say that, we would say, oh yeah. (laughs) The Lord is risen. We would say, you got that right. (laughs) Or the Lord is risen. And we we said, amen. (laughs) We didn't know. But now we know to say, when people say, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Our message this morning is from John 20, verses 1 through 18. And the, the title of my message this morning is The Strange Story of Easter. This is the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. They were running But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where, have you laid, where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabuni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Father, now we thank you for this good word, the account of the empty tomb and the resurrection illuminate our hearts now, that the glory of Easter and this day may be set ablaze in our hearts, that we might be transformed as people of the resurrection in all of its power and glory, and know that the risen Lord Jesus stands here today in all of his resurrection power, ready to save us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Or yesterday, a report, Dateline Jerusalem, on the eve of the annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The one million inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem were shocked this year by an announcement that a body identified as that of Jesus was found in a long-neglected tomb just outside the boundary of the city. Rumors had been circulating last week that a very important discovery was about to be announced. The news, however, far outstrips our wildest guesses. The initial reaction of Christians here, the report has said, and around the world has been one of astonishment, bewilderment, and defensive disbelief. We'll have to wait and see just what the effects of this discovery will have on the 2,000-year-old religion, said one reporter. To the mind of this unbeliever, it appears that Christianity will have to take its place on the same level with all other religions of the world. No longer can its followers claim unlike the other religions, that the tomb of its founder is empty. Evidently, a 2,000-year-old lie has come to an end. That report I just read, none of it's true. It's all made up. But if it was true, what would it mean to you? Would it matter at all? The Apostle Paul seemed to think so because he said that if Jesus is not raised, and he means literally and physically, your faith is in vain, and we are still in our sins. That's how important today is. That's how important Easter is. The resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which Christianity opens and closes. Or we could say that the empty tomb and the resurrection are the horizon on which the Christian faith rises and falls. But before we can get to its meaning... We have to experience Easter as an event. 
And the story of Easter, in the Gospels at least, is primarily about presenting the historical facts of the event as true. One of the most remarkable things about all four gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus is that it is devoid of theological reflection. That would come later in writers like the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers, and rightly so. But the reason that that is not first is because the story of the empty tomb must never be mistaken as a metaphor or a symbol of something else or a spiritualized experience or an allegory. It is above all things an event in history. I'm reminded of John Updike's trenchant poem, Let Us Not Mock God with Metaphor, Analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event the parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience or our own sense of beauty. Lest awakened In one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. The truth is that the Gospels do not give us a Jesus who lives on in the hearts of his followers and is alive in the way that Grandma lives in the hearts of her family and will never be forgotten. That is not the feeling, the idea, and the power of the risen Jesus. That is not what the Gospels intend to convey to us. They give us, whether we can believe it or not, a historical event. And present, and presents that historical event as something to be believed. One of my all-time favorite preachers, the now retired pastor of Bishop's Gate Church in London, Dick Lucas, who's now 96 years old, talks about the early years of his ministry in London in the 1960s, and he would have lunchtime services in his church in downtown London for all of these businessmen and professionals that would come in and have lunch in the worship center, and there would be a lesson every weekday. And... He said that most of the people that came, most of the Christians, people who identified as Christians in England in the 1960s, did not really know what Easter was about. And when he explained that Easter was about the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and that it was a non-negotiable article of faith, many replied saying, thank you for explaining it. I now understand and realize I'm not a Christian. And by that they meant that was too hard to believe. To which Dick Lucas replied saying, praise the Lord. He would rather have people not follow Jesus for the right reasons than following him for the wrong reasons. 
Today, many people look at Easter and feel the same way. The resurrection is seen maybe as fanciful religious invention. Maybe a clever rework of many of the dying and rising God myths of antiquity. How many of you have heard of some of the dying and rising God myths of antiquity, history? The problem is that the dying and rising deities motif, first conceptualized by James Frazier in 1890 in his book, The Golden Bow, is itself a myth. Although it's been oft repeated many, many, many times down to this day. In Greek and ancient Near Eastern religions, there are dying gods, sure, lots of them, but very few, if any, actually are said to rise again, let alone have a physical resurrection. If they do come back to life, it's sort of symbolic. Osiris, the Egyptian husband of the goddess Isis, is killed by his brother Set, and it's his scattered body that restarts the yearly vegetation cycle of crops, which, of course, is not a bodily resurrection from the grave, but a symbolic rebirth. In Greek mythology, Dionysus, the son of Zeus, is torn to pieces by the Titans, then destroyed, then Zeus destroys the Titans by a thunderbolt, as a result of their action against his son, Dionysus. But later on, Dionysus rises from the ashes, excuse me, humans are said to rise from his ashes, but Dionysus himself does not rise from the grave. There's no resurrection. The phoenix, phoenix bird, uh, the Greek mythological bird, is said to rise from the ashes of its predecessors kind of a cyclical regeneration, sort of a Lion King circle of life situation where one animal lives because of the death of another. That kind of stuff. But nothing like we see in the resurrection, the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus where someone who was dead comes back to life to live forevermore. The dying and rising God motif has outlasted its usefulness as a formidable foil to Christianity. It's long been deconstructed and debunked even by scholars, although it still gets lots of airplay. James Frazier himself, who sort of put the theory forward formally, said that his theories were speculative and that the associations he made were circumstantial and usually based only on resemblance. Historian of religion and professor at the University of Chicago, Mercy Iliad, who wrote the entry on dying and rising deities in the 1987 Encyclopedia of Religion, dismisses the category as largely a misnomer based on imaginative reconstructions and exceedingly late or highly ambiguous texts, meaning it's all bogus. I say all that to distinguish the resurrection as a rational historical claim, not just another religious myth. In fact, in that regard, the story of Jesus' empty tomb and the resurrection is utterly unique 
from anything else in the world or history of religions. It is a story, hear me now, it is a story without precedent. There is no precedent for it. There is nothing like the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, the physical resurrection from the dead. And so when we plunge into stories of the first Easter day, the accounts we have in the four Gospels, we find that they don't snugly fit together. How many women went to the tomb? How many angels did the men meet there? Did the disciples meet in Jerusalem or Galilee or both? And so on and so forth. But whatever discrepancies exist on the surface, it doesn't mean that nothing happened. On the contrary, they're a reasonable indication that something remarkable happened. So remarkable that the first witnesses were so bewildered by it that they told slightly different stories about it. Imagine, for instance, if a, if a crime happened and detectives showed up on the scene and interviewed random people, maybe one on each street corner. And as the detective went around to these different strangers, they found that all the stories perfectly lined up, word for word. It wouldn't take long for a detective to say, something's not right here. These people have corroborated their stories. You get the idea. If all four gospel accounts told the story of the resurrection exactly the same, using exactly the exact same details and the exact same words, you'd have evidence of corroboration, and any more than one gospel account would be superfluous. The fact that they differ slightly is proof or evidence or lends weight to the fact that this is something that people witnessed as they told the same event but slightly different. We also don't have things that might be present were someone inventing a story. There are strange features in the gospel accounts that compel us to take them seriously. And the first is the strange silence of the Bible in the stories. Up to this point in the gospel surrounding Jesus' death and crucifixion are lots of Old Testament quotations and allusions and echoes. But the resurrection narratives are almost entirely silent of this. In other words, they don't see the tomb, the empty tomb and the resurrection, as a fulfillment of some previously foretold prophecy, at least not at this point. They are simply reacting based on what they see. In other words, it would take them time down the road to make sense of it. But as you would expect, they're just telling the story as they witness it. In other words, they, they're not following some pre-scripted bread, trail of breadcrumbs saying, well, this is usually how resurrection stories go, so tell the story this way. Well, let's look back on a history of physical resurrection from the grave stories of some deity, and we'll sort of find our way through it. That is not what was happening. In other words, there was no theological axe to grind by the eyewitnesses. They were 
They were witnessing something and telling that story. It wasn't part of a pre-planned agenda. The gospel writers were not following a script. And when they recorded these events, they weren't even sure at this stage how it all fit in. Again, they were just writing things down as they witnessed it or hearing from eyewitnesses who were simply telling the story. The second strange feature, which is more often remarked upon that we're familiar with, is the strange presence of women as principal witnesses. Look at this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Whether we like it or not, women were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world. And someone trying to craft a believable story would have seen that fact as apologetically embarrassing. But there they are, in all four gospel stories, front and center as the first witnesses. And that never would have happened unless it was true. Unless this is exactly how it all went down. And the third feature is the strange portrait of Jesus himself. And what I mean by that is they weren't sure what to make of the risen Jesus. You know, some say the Easter stories were written much, much later by people who had developed some inner experience of illumination of Jesus. In other words, he lived in some way, in their mind and in their heart. You can think about when someone you dearly love dies. What happens? You have dreams that they're still alive. My brother died in 2003, and I remember dreams where he was sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with us smiling, and I was weeping, saying, but you're dead. But he was alive. I had a dream like that after 2018 when my own father died. <clears throat> my father, who died at 76 and was frail and weak and emaciated, in the dream he was maybe about 50, and he stood tall. My dad was 6'3", and he was strong. He was a big, strong man. And I saw him sort of in all of his glory in this dream, the way I wanted to remember my father. And so we understand that, don't we? We understand that when people die, there is something in us that longs for that person to still be alive. And that is an accusation that the resurrection stories of Jesus simply represent the early disciple community, their longing for him to continue to live. But if that was true, you'd expect Jesus, you'd expect to find the risen Jesus sort of like shining like a star. Because that's what an experience of inner illumination might have generated. But none of the Gospels portray Jesus this way. He appears as a human being with a body that is in some ways quite normal and can be mistaken for the gardener of all people or a fellow traveler on the road, like the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, or he eats with them, Luke 24, 41, while they were still in disbelief because of their joy and amazement, Jesus asked them, 
Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. Imagine that. You gotta be famished after an experience like that. And he was. Yet, the stories also contain, and this marks them out as among the most mysterious stories ever written. The stories contain definite signs that this body has been transformed. So it's the same and it's different. It's clearly physical. It uses up, so to speak, the matter of the crucified body, hence the empty tomb, but equally it comes and goes through locked doors. When the disciples are cowering in fear on the day of the resurrection because they're afraid that the Romans are going to hunt down the rest of Jesus' followers, being in a room in a house with the doors locked, Jesus appears. He sort of just walks right through the wall. It doesn't say that in the text, but he's got this body that can sit down and eat, and he can also sort of walk through a wall. I'm not saying I understand it all, how it works, how the resurrection body works, but the scriptures want to tell us something about the risen Jesus that nobody could have predicted. They didn't know what to make of it, but they recorded what they saw. It wasn't, wasn't a motif of resurrection for the gospel writers to follow. It wasn't painting by numbers. They recorded and wrote down either what they saw or what the eyewitnesses saw. As messy as it was, and it's messy. Now later on in the New Testament, it gets cleaned up, and I don't mean it gets, it gets fixed or they make something up about it, but what I mean is, down the road, the meaning of those events are interpreted. And this brings us to the fourth strange feature of the resurrection account, which is the strange lack of the Christian hope. Almost everywhere else in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is spoken of in connection with the final hope, and rightly so, that Christians have, that those who belong to Jesus will one day be raised as he has been raised. But in the stories of the empty tomb and post-resurrection appearances, there is no mention of life after death, not in the Gospels. Nothing that says Jesus is raised, therefore we will be raised, or Jesus is raised, therefore we will go to heaven when we die. Those are all good conclusions made elsewhere, but here in the actual Easter story, Jesus' resurrection doesn't include any of that. Why? Because none of that matters unless this is a truly historical event, and that's what the Gospels want to communicate to us. This was a real event in history. And so it wants to establish the historical fact and reality that the resurrection was a real event. Just a side word about history. You know, historical events, big historical events are recorded first in just the facts. And we all tell them subjectively, right? But if you think of something like Mount St. Helens or the 2004 tsunami, when you turn to articles online or in newspapers, you have entries that record the data as they happened. 
Now maybe years later, somebody looks back on the tsunami and writes a book about the deep meaning in the way people dealt with it, and rightly so. But that is not what you have first. You first have the record of events. You can imagine the suddenness and the surprise of these big events are the first things to be recorded. People's reaction, where were you when you saw the top of the mountain blow off in 1980, whatever it was, 1980, I think. Where were you when the tsunami washed ashore in Indonesia, sweeping away entire resorts and thousands of people? How did it make you feel? What did you see? That's what's happening in the gospel accounts. This person saw this. This person was shocked by this. They came to the tomb. They, they expected to see his body there so they could put burial spices with his decomposing body so that it wouldn't smell when they came later to take his bones away for his second burial in an ossuary or a box where you typically put bones of someone. You wrap them, you sort of loosely mummified them with spices like the women came, but when they showed up, to their surprise, no matter what Jesus said, they still expected his body to be there, but it wasn't. It was gone. One of the things that the story defies is any notion that now as modern people, we know that people don't rise from the dead. No one in the first century thought people just rose from the dead either. Right? It wasn't like, oh, Jesus said he's going to die and three days later be rise from the dead. Sure, of course, yeah, people do it all the time. <laughs> we should give them a little more credit than that. People in the first century did believe that there would be a resurrection at the end of history. At the very end of time wherein God would judge everyone. But no one expected that the resurrection itself would happen to one person in the middle of history. That the span of history from start to finish would be broken up in the middle and one person would rise from the dead. Right in the middle. And this changed the course of human history, world history. This is why Easter is so special. This is why we celebrate every year the empty tomb and resurrection. Because the world was forever changed on that Easter morning 21 centuries ago. All of human history, you could say, looked forward to it before, and all of human history after will look backward on it. You could say that all of human history is a footnote to Easter. Because by it, God showed, now we're getting at the meaning as we close here. By it, God showed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And this shaped more than any other thing the early Christian church's identity as people of the resurrection. And that's who we are. We are people shaped by the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. They followed and worship the Savior who rose from the dead literally. And because of that, we have hope. Paul writes to the Thessalonians after the church had had several decades to reflect on the meaning of it all. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. And confessing and believing that it's true meant salvation. He writes in Romans 9 and 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, if you believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, say amen. Amen. Because of your faith, Jesus' achievement is applied to you. Because of your faith. Because you believe in this reality, and many don't. Because you persist in faith in this, this event as a real thing, Jesus' achievement is applied to you. None of us in this room are very far from death. Some of us may be closer in age to death. Some of us may have underlying diseases we don't know about, that we may get a diagnosis of some kind of terminal disease. Some of us may die a lot sooner than we're expecting. Where is your hope and trust? Is it in the scientific ability to prolong human life? For medicine to get better and better? It's getting better, and that's great. And people are living longer, and that's good. But you will not live forever in this body. Is your hope in the Lord of glory who rose from the dead and promises that all who follow him and believe in him will also rise to a resurrection? Jesus' resurrection in the middle of history guarantees us that at, at the end of history, we who follow and believe in him will be raised. And so whatever present reality you face this morning is made all the more meaningful because of Easter. Whatever you're dealing with, the future hope of the resurrection makes the present matter more. We're not nihilists. We don't believe that when we die, it's all over. We believe in something greater than this world and this life, greater than ourselves. And so on this Easter morning, my hope for you is that God would grant you the anticipation of the final resurrection in your daily life. And may you, with hope for the future, live in the present. And may Easter inspire you with a very this-worldly, present-age meaning that your labors of love are not in vain in the Lord. The Lord is risen. Amen. Pray with me. Good and gracious God, our most glorious creator. As we greet the signs in nature around us of spring once again, regaling us in bloom, and the songs of returning birds and fields soon to be planted, we give you praise for an even greater sign of new life, the resurrection of your son our Lord Jesus Christ, that we especially celebrate at this time. 
The sadness and despair of his death has given way to the bright promise of immortality. For the resurrection is our guarantee that justice will triumph over treason, light will overcome darkness, and love will conquer death. As we celebrate, we also dare to ask for your grace that we may live the promise given to us by imitating the life of Jesus and reaching out to our neighbors, reaching out to the poor, the marginalized, the least among us, as we strive to be a neighbor to all those we meet. And we ask your special blessings on each and every day on our nation, that you would bring hope and justice in a world hungry for peace and so in need of your love. We praise you this Easter season. Change our lives, change our hearts to be messengers of resurrection, joy, and hope. And we make our prayer through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord forever. Amen.